Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. Uh, for those of you that are new, are joining us here. Uh, IWP is a graduate school of national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel free to visit us at iwp.edu or grab a staff member in the lobby after the lecture. To support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu backslash donate. Before we begin the lecture, we ask that you take a moment to sound all electronic devices. We'll just give you a second here to do that. Perfect, thank you. Today we'll be hearing from Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Iwicki, who will deliver a lecture entitled Modern Intelligence Operations Across Multi-Domain Environments. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Iwicki has served in the U.S. intelligence community in both the military and industry capacity for the last 35 years. He began his intelligence career when he was commissioned as an Army intelligence officer in 1985 after an ROTC scholarship for his undergraduate studies. Over the next 20 years, he served in positions of increasing responsibility with extensive experience in managing every facet of the intelligence process from raw intelligence collection and processing to strategic level analysis supporting White House cabinet members. He has experienced in employing both foreign and domestic intelligence capabilities in support of national security. With that, please welcome Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Iwicki. Okay, good afternoon and thanks for coming out. This is the second chance I've had to, to talk at IWP, so it's always an honor for me. And I guess between the room and online, I think there are about 70 people registered. So uh, this is a good topic to talk about. It's a rather timely one as well. So we all good with our sound check, Sean, everything got all right low. Everybody hears me okay in the room? I'm not used to mics in a room like this, so. Um, <clears throat> but as uh, Sean said, I'm Steve Iwicki. Uh, 85 to 2005, I was an Army intelligence officer that took us just about everywhere the U.S. government had troops deployed. So we're going to walk through a couple of those things as technology changed over time. But uh, basically from Desert Storm through Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, just about everywhere in between, I had a chance to be on the ground doing intelligence work, which was always a different and challenging mission. I joined industry in 2005. Uh, and then I've been running basically programs supporting intelligence and intelligence IT ever since. And a lot of more quick reaction type capabilities to help improve our capabilities for intel analysts to support our warfighters. But when I talk today about multi-domain operations, it doesn't matter whether you're a tactical fight within the military or you're doing strategic policy. The, the principles we're talking about always apply as we go through the talk today. So it's playing about a third of the time at the end for questions and answers, but if you got a burning question in the middle, feel free to you know, raise your hand and we can definitely talk about that. So with that, the other thing to tell you is, if you do intelligence work long enough, you're definitely gonna have reading glasses. And I'll tell you the story how that happened to me as, as we go through all of this. So basically to start with an overview, multi-domain operations, you know, multi-domain is not really a new concept. Um, we've always had to think about all the domains as we do intelligence work, but the speed and the dependency in which the domains interact today is basically in a real-time manner, and that's what's changed. Everything is pretty much simultaneous as we do this, but the most important part still is the analytical mindset to be able to conduct your intelligence operations and analysis in any operational environment, and that's the key is if you understand how to do analytical thinking and critical thinking, you can tackle any problem they throw at you. You know, from tactical things that I had to do in the Army to I was the Deputy Director of Intelligence for the Drug Czar's Office to encounter drug strategy uh, at one point in the White House. So it doesn't really matter what problem you're doing. You apply the methodologies that you've learned in the critical thinking pass, and you can tackle any problem that's out there regardless of the focus. And sometimes that literally was uh, policy development. In some cases, it was nation building following military operations in Haiti. I'll talk a little bit about that as well. So this is a lot of the challenge we face today. Um, and I have this one with my daughters who are in their mid-20s right now. You know, senior leaders are still not as comfortable as we need to be around technology. In the same breath, the younger leaders that are coming in, the younger analysts are all about the technology and not so much about the context of the data that they're seeing and how it applies. So there's this constant tug of war that's typically tagged the maintainers of the old versus the creators of the new. 
But it's a balance that you have to find because the only thing today that provides true context in your analysis is the human mind. Artificial intelligence and things like that can help you sort data, you know, find the needle in the haystack or the gold needle in the pile of needles, but it's never going to necessarily provide you the context of the situation you're facing that answers the questions that our leaders need. So as we focus more about that, um, the human brain is still, no matter how good technology gets, it's the human brain and the thought process to put that in context, which is one of the most important messages that any intel analyst has to keep in mind. So this is a, an interesting one I heard just last week from a, a PhD friend of mine. You know, so imagine for a minute we took an economic analyst and we took an intelligence analyst and we put them to sleep in 1990 and we woke them up today. And for the economic analyst, we say, here's all the economic data and reporting between the U.S. and China since you went to sleep in 1990. And for the Intel analyst, we say, here's all the open source and classified information concerning the relationships of the U.S. and China. How do you think each of those would come to a conclusion of what the relationship today was between the U.S. and China? Any ideas on this one? This is a participation question. What do you think the, the economist would say today? Tied. Tied? We're okay. tied to each other, economically speaking. Tied together, yep. Very strong economic allies, which was, the, and this was a real study that was done recently, and that was the answer. The economist would say, you have a great, close, personal relationship between these two countries that are economically tied to trade, and it's very cooperative. What do you think the Italians would say? <laughs> We're at war. You know, so it was a really interesting study that they did, and I didn't catch the name of the formal study, but it was a real one that was done under the Defense Department's umbrella. But it really gives you the context, again, it's, it's what the data you look at. It gives you the mindset of, am I biased in a certain direction or am I ignoring facts in other directions? And we're gonna kind of walk through some things, but that's an important thing to keep in mind when we talk about really what is intelligence. And it's really the ability to learn and understand or deal with new and trying situations because everything we face as an intel analyst has some type of situation we're trying to resolve with a goal that we want to achieve, typically as a nation. But you know, when you really boil it down, intelligence still is about collecting secrets that aren't publicly available and then safeguarding those secrets. And it's starting to change a little bit with the open source enterprise that's developed, and I'll talk more about that later. But you know, we really need to keep in mind intelligence really is about finding out the information the enemy or the adversary doesn't want us to know. Leveraging that information to make our decision makers make more informed decisions to be more predictive of what's going to happen, and then protecting that information. But in the same breath, it's protecting our information from counterintelligence threats and other threats as we go through there. Intel is never static. You know, it's literally minutes between the time you can get a report and the time it changes. So no plan, no strategy, no operation survives first contact, is what we like to say. You can have all the detailed information in the world, but the minute something starts actually happening, there's gonna be branches and sequels that you have to address, whether it's militarily or policy, or other economic issues as well, that can crash the stock market. So we need to recognize that, and we need to recognize what we don't know so that we can keep those leaders informed of this is what I do know, this is what I don't know. And you know, the, and the best questions a leader can ask you when they truly stop you, you have a good leader you're working for first, and the second is, I don't know, but I'll find out and get back to you, is a very acceptable answer that a senior leader can respect. So you don't want to just sit up on the stage and kind of waffle when you're doing a briefing or something, tell them you don't know it, and that's a risk we've identified or a gap, and then how do we go back and fill that gap? But we're constantly thinking in terms of time, space, and visualizing that when we communicate with our leaders. And more and more, it's getting to be a digital presentation. Uh, you know, I can go back to days like Desert Storm. We were still using things called rub-off symbols called chart pack, that overhead view graphs that had to get redone every night because some colonel or general wanted a slightly different version of the slide. To today, everything's done basically in PowerPoint and visual displays on screen with secure video teleconferencing. As I walk you through from about Desert Storm to the present, talk about some of the things that changed, I think it'll surprise some of you because a lot of you, well, maybe not so many this year, but a lot weren't even born when we did Desert Storm and the technology that existed then compared to where we're at today. <clears throat> so with that, what I want to do is talk a little bit about how 
the technology and the domains have changed over the last 30 years. So I entered the Army in 1985, and here we were in 91, 1991, Desert Storm. And I was a young captain. Uh, I was leading a 32-person analytical team that was responsible for all the current intelligence for the entire ground theater for Kuwait and Iraq as we went into Desert Storm. So this small team basically was responsible for the current intel picture and basically providing the key reads on what the Iraqi forces would do that impact the lives of 600,000 Americans and all our allies that were with us. We were fortunate we had a five-month buildup on the ground during Desert Shield. I can tell you that based upon satellite imagery, I can tell you where just about every Iraqi position in Foxhole was and what was in it, because we had that time to do the buildup, but everything was coming in in paper. And we would produce basically imagery annotated maps that showed all those positions where there were tanks and other personnel carriers and all. But in every case, it was a piece of paper. Then it got to be like a poster size, and pallets and pallets of paper were coming in to be distributed out to all the units in the front lines. And everything we communicated with back then was what we call record message traffic, which was basically like a teletype printer that would print out a piece of paper that would come into my analyst shop, and we put a little X on the top there, because I had four teams, and all four teams had a read and initial that they read that piece of paper. And we were reading about 2,000 pages of reports a day, manually, and then updating maps with acetate. Um, you know, we were worried about, obviously, back then, chemical warfare, minefields, any guerrilla warfare that might happen in the rear. But we had the capability, the U.S. at the time, of the defense launch satellite detection. So if they launched a Scud missile, there would be a satellite that could detect it. But how did we find out about it? when we're over in Saudi Arabia and the detections back in the U.S. So we literally had the first generation of what today is known as a Stu-3 secure phone at a TSSCI level. And we called the, the watch center in the Pentagon and we did not hang up that phone for six weeks. And we couldn't afford to keep somebody on the phone all the time. So the way we got around it was there was a, literally a whistle next to the phone. And they had a whistle in D.C. And if a new launch went off, there was a message inbound faster than a teletype could get us a message. They would blow the whistle on the phone. You could hear that. We would stop, go silent, and they'd read us the report of where the launch was and where the scud was expected impact in a general area that we were in in the next 10 minutes. So different kind of technology. You know, today we look at UAVs and drones and say it, they're all over the place. You can get them down to like a phone-sized tablet or controller. See live video back then. It was the first UAV ever fielded. It went to one terminal, and that video could not be shared outside of that terminal. Uh, and then JSTARS. Does anybody here know what JSTARS is? So synthetic aperture radar that basically could detect anything that was the size of a Volkswagen Beetle that was metal and moving on the battlefield. Uh, it was one of the most key systems we had because... When they started to uh, withdraw from Kuwait, we were able to track them, and that's how we targeted them. And basically, you had this large commercial airline-sized Air Force jet that had that big canoe in the bottom that had that radar in it, and then you had a ground station vehicle like the lower left, and basically all these dots represented moving targets. And then you could kind of play it over time like a little video, and it build you the line to show you these were all the routes they were using to withdraw out of Kuwait. Based upon that, you could target key checkpoints and you could see the destruction that the Air Force was able to do once they knew where to shoot and fly against. So that was a key technology that brought that about, that helped us quickly end the, con uh, the conflict and make sure the Iraqi army did not escape intact to fight another day. And then there's a few others as we talk real briefly as we go through like Haiti, because Haiti was basically a regime change. Now we're up to about 94. It was primarily imagery for planning and then SIGINT and human for uh, execution of the mission. But the fact that they knew we were coming for real is what triggered them to a political solution. So literally, Haiti had six armored personnel carriers. The U.S. had special ops forces on the ground in Haiti. And I was sitting in a command post at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with a report. The V-150 at the airfield is still manned by three people. Two were under the belly sleeping and one is in the vehicle for all six vehicles knowing what was going to happen. But at the same breath, the Haitians had observers that were around the Fort Bragg area when they saw all the planes taken off with the 82nd Airborne to do a combat operation and land on the airfield, they capitulated and said, that's it, we're done. 
So again, it was a back and forth between the two of us. But again, the domains still were about Sigit and Cumit primarily. We go to the, the Balkans and ethnic cleansing, and this really was the first non-state aggression kind of uh, scenario we faced because of the ethnic cleansing. You know, Cumit and Sigit again were the big ones. Imagery helped contribute to a lot of the, the mass graves and some other things, but basically it was a tactical street fight that eventually they got tired of fighting each other and got to a political situation with a peacekeeping force. Kosovo was a little bit similar later, but Kosovo, not only was it Elan imagery, it was the first time we had streaming UAV uh, video that could be transmitted over a network. So I'm sitting in Albania with the task force, a UAV is flying in Kosovo, and we're able to view the imagery, talk to the Air Force in Italy, which controlled all the air missions, and then launch assaults against us. Uh, Serbian equipment that we found there. So this was the first time that we were actually able to bring in a little bit of the space domain because of the communications that allowed us to fight in real time using UAV assets as a, as a new tool. And we had trained in the synthetic environment, a lot like the war games you do here every year, to say this is what it's going to look like, this is how we'll plan missions, this is the type of data we expect to receive, and how do we analyze it and process it. And we literally come off an exercise the month prior to going into Albania. So we went to real instead of having a synthetic virtual reality picture of UAV with simulated tanks and things on the screen, we had real live video that showed what was going on on the ground. And then came 9-11, which was a real game changer, as we all know. 9-11, um, I, was, I was one month into serving in the White House as the Deputy Director of Intelligence for the Drugs of the Office of National Control Policy, Drug Control Policy. And obviously, Nobody saw 9-11 coming, despite all the reports there, to the magnitude it did. And that brought us into the counterterrorism fight, which again changed our whole multi-domain uh, operations as we looked at this. So Afghanistan really, as we start the counterterrorism fight, it's basically non-state actors that we're looking at. They were all about regime change, which was similar a little bit to, to Haiti, but it was mainly a, a culture war. Human singing was huge. How many people would think cell phones were one of the key ways they communicated in Afghanistan? The cell phones played a huge role in that, along with the high uh, power cordless phones that we were able to tap into, but now it became more about data analytics and how do we jam those systems to help them not be able to communicate because a patrol would go through a village and the cell phone network would just light up, reporting on the presence of the patrol. And you could tell by the locations of where to go house to house to find out who was potentially Taliban and other things like that. But it was difficult because now we're trying to find an enemy that was hiding in plain sight, didn't wear a uniform, and just blended in right with the culture. Iraq was similar in that regime change that again went to culture and proxy war. But Iraq really is where what we call patterns of life analysis were born. And patterns of light was to figure out what is the pattern you see when you're trying to target a network. For instance, the, the leader of a, a bomb-making cell would have lunch every Thursday at 1 p.m. at his nephew's house. And if you study things over time, you see patterns like that and say, okay, if we know he's going to be there, it's much higher probability of success to pick him up there with less collateral damage than it would be to potentially launch a drone strike or some other type of assault against them. And that's really where we, we made this shift. But the other thing that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan was it was the first time the US intelligence was inadvertently collecting against Americans because of all the Americans that were there with cell phones and other things that we started getting all this US personal information. In. So there had to be some policy changes to how do we do that because Sometimes it was a matter of somebody was communicating with someone in the U.S. from Iraq. It was an, say, an Iraqi citizen. Sometimes it was a U.S. contractor. It was all different things. So we had a rule that basically we were allowed to keep it for 90 days. And after 90 days, if it was connected to a U.S. person and no criminal intent was found, that had to be purged from all the records. And you think about the billions of records from all the cell phone calls home from contractors, soldiers, things like that. It's a really big challenge. And then once again, it got a little bit quiet for not quite a year, and then comes Ukraine. And Ukraine really has been a game changer in domains more than people could ever imagine. And uh, I'm going to talk about a few of them, but 
You know, the Ukrainian military, while it's at a quantitative and qualitative disadvantage to a degree for personnel and equipment, it's proven resilient and adaptive. Now, how much of that is because we overstated the Russian capabilities? Still will be resolved. But they had the will to fight, and the whole world combined to basically collectively give Ukraine all the intelligence that we all had collectively in a precedence that's never been seen before. And the other piece of this was the, the open source reporting. Okay, We have never seen the level of open source applied to a military operation like we see in Ukraine today. And that's not just from open source from a government perspective, but it's commercially available information and information that uh, even groups that would normally be against the government, hackers and things like that, are working in cooperation to provide to the Ukraine. Any, anybody know what this picture represents here? You know what Starlink is? That's, that's a Starlink antenna that's providing internet. I'm going to talk a little more about that one later because that's also a game changer. But you know, the thing that's really unique is not only have we provided all this open source, but our government and the other NATO allies in particular have basically declassified an unprecedented amount of information that normally would remain classified to be able to stay ahead of Russia and Putin on their intentions and tell them where things are and what's happening on the battlefield. So that there's definitely gonna be consequences as we go forward. So what really changed with Ukraine? You know, again, it's beyond the world is collectively tracking and reporting Russia's movements, both classified and unclassified. You know, high fidelity open source basically has become almost a commercial business now. I've always been a huge fan of open source for a number of years because we've used open source to collect against denied access area threats. We've used it to break up drug rings on the dark web and other types of things. But Open source has really gone mainstream now with commercial industry and others. Nations have declassified more information than ever before, while still trying to protect our sources and methods and our secrets. But now industry and commercial entities like SpaceX, you know, Elon Musk are in the fight. And that really has been a game changer. When you think about Ukraine today, it's kind of like the, the Toys R Us testing grounds for the rest of the world to try to defeat Russia. Our current open source environment really has become its own sovereign intelligence domain. You could buy commercial Landsat imagery, you can buy high resolution imagery, uh, among other things that are there that are providing expertise. On the ground, the sensors are everywhere. You know, cell phone cameras capturing important military movements directly to targeting networks. Um, you know, TikTok, Telegram, all these things, and other human sources. Sometimes credibility is questionable. You have to still do your analysis of it, but they're sharing real-time reports and indicators of events that just never have happened before. And then when we're analyzing all this, there's still tremendous insight into quantities and capabilities, but again, the insight into the intention <coughs> and putting it in context still requires a trained analyst to understand that. And that's the key that uh, I think is really important is even with all this data, AI and things can help sort some of that data down to the priorities and queries you're running, but you still need an analyst with a human brain in the loop to really figure out the context of what they're reading. And if you're interested in open source, there's an article, if you Google it, they're building an open source intelligence buyers club, which is actually a pretty good article that talks about how all this is coming together. But there are also some unexpected things here. Um, you know, in terms of there's an app for that really is becoming a theme in Ukraine. And it's not only about targeting, it's about cyber denial service and other things that people are actually using to circumvent traditional chains of command. An artillery unit literally can tie into this one app when a target pops up and if they have available fires and it's in their zone, they can choose to fire on that target in seconds. Whereas traditionally it would go through a whole process before they get a fire direction order. And think about that, claim targets of convenience from those on a bespoke app. So you're crowdsourcing with average citizens the ability to target. Now, there's some risk in doing that, but the reward generally has been very strong because they're all motivated. You know, and then what happens if you pull the plug on the internet and cell service? Well, that's where Elon stepped in. And I don't know if you, if you remember reading about it, but the first couple days they put, uh, Starlink into Ukraine, the Russians were able to jam it. 
and his team spent about 24 hours recoded a bunch of software and they've been unable to jam it since. Okay, so right now there's about 40 low Earth SpaceX satellites, all commercial, that are providing that high speed internet. And it literally is about 11,000 units like you saw in the picture that provide the internet connectivity and high speed domain access. And it's jam resistant and it's almost impossible to target all those satellites without starting to shoot them down and create what would be an unprecedented war in space. You know, even there's an app that they developed so that an average Ukrainian citizen or anybody who wants to be a cyber analyst can go onto this and this basically puts into Russian sites loaded into the phone just to hit them with enough service demands to start creating a denial of service event against the Russian government. So this is here a chance where now all of a sudden you have a citizen cyber soldier, so to speak, that's out there, have no idea what they're doing. They just want to be part of the fight. You know, so they download the phone on their app, they do this and it has, and it contributes to an impact that they really don't understand. They really can't quantify how much of a difference it's making, but they know it's making a difference and they want to be part of that. So future threats. So this is a, an area that's kind of interesting because you look at all these domains and you say, okay, Operational scenarios still impact where is the future threats we have to worry about because today you can say Ukraine is not really a denied access area because we have overflights and other sensors that can see it based on the side of the country. But if you compare it to China, which is still a denied access area, you can do a little bit of standoff, fly along the border and look in. You can do some space overhead, but there's not a whole lot of other things you can do still today. So as we look at the future capabilities, where is our government focused on? I can tell you that the unclassified level of standoff capabilities that can see deep into a country without entering it, and it's long duration operating times to limit the number of systems. So if you had, say, a UAV that could see 100 kilometers in, but it only had a mission duration of five hours, maybe six hours to make it easy, for 24-7 you need four missions every day. Whereas if you could come up with a platform that could fly for 24 hours or longer, you just reduce the number of platform requirements significantly that helps look deeper for longer periods of time. So we're looking at both the sensor capability and the platform capability, alternative fuels, things like that, that could be potentially a more volatile fuel that could keep a UAV in flight for over 24 hours. And then believe it or not, exquisite expendable sensors so if you ask somebody in the U.S. government, what's the price point of that? They'll tell you it's about 250000 per unit. So they're willing to lose a sensor that costs about $250,000 if it can penetrate and it can report back for as long as possible. In other areas, we're looking at our hyperspectral collection capabilities, which we have today. Uh, but hyperspectral basically is non-visible light blue camera system that can say, I see the Russian camouflage paint associated with a Russian tank, and I can identify the tank. Or you could say, in the northeast corner of that compound, go to that corner, lift up the blue tarp, and you'll find the IED stash because of the chemical residue of the explosives, things like that. Or you could be flying a pipeline and find a leak because it's all about non-visible light and collection. And the neat thing about hyperspectral is it's science. If it says it's there, it's really there. Um, we were flying some hyperspectral in Afghanistan, primarily against counter-drug and counter-IED, and we were nominating about 100 times more targets than the entire ISAF forces, including the Afghan army, could ever service. And every single target they went to, what we said was there, was there. So hyperspectral is something that eventually is going to get to space. There's still some technology challenges associated with that because of the resolution. Um, believe it or not, hyperspectral has a focal plane uh, that does the analysis that literally gets grown in a lab from organic material and then machined into certain specs that helps you identify those. But you could do a calibration for this chemical signature of just about anything in the world. And as long as you have that signature there, part of the calibration, then you know the sensor finds it and sees the signature and tells you what it is. So we've built massive databases of hyperspectral signatures and that will continue to be an area that we advance in going forward. But again, 250,000 per unit. I mean, that's a hard bill to swallow as a taxpayer sometimes when you talk about it. But in the end, if you took a UAV system, a large UAV platform with sensors and all and went in, you know, that could be hundreds of millions of dollars per unit. And you don't want to lose that. Okay, so to kind of wrap up a little bit, 
you know, every problem, analytical problem has roadblocks, whether you're a genealogist or an intel analyst. I also do genealogy, and I'll tell you, I had one problem it took me 10 years to solve, but I finally figured out the connection I needed to do that. But the thing is, it comes back to the sources of information. You always have to be thinking you're like Captain Kirk on the bridge. Am I looking at the right sources of human, elant, imagery, open source, all those types of things? Because collectively they come together. And if you're a single discipline analyst, you will miss pieces that you don't see because you don't cross queue your information. You know, a great example of that when I was the drug czar's intel guy, I used to get access to both law enforcement and foreign intelligence reporting in the counter drug mission. So you'd have the FBI, the DEA domestically, you'd have the Defense Intelligence Agency, CIA, and other intel assets outside the US. They would send all their reports to the same place to each other, but they wouldn't read each other's mail. Okay. And myself and two analysts basically built out a network from Laredo, Mexico to Chicago that showed even on 9-11, they stopped for 24 hours before they went right back to the drug operations coming across the border through Laredo, Texas. And we built this whole target package together and I had to brief the leaders of all those agencies. And they all said, how did you possibly come to this? And I said, I read your mail, your mail, your mail, your mail, and did fusion. It was as simple as that. The information was there. It was just a matter of, are you thinking all source all the time? And you know, my whole career, I've been an all source guy. It isn't about the disciplines, it's understanding the disciplines. And yes, you need some experts in each discipline, but the really good analysts are the ones that are consistently thinking all source. Then new technology is always changing, and you have to think about how do we tap into those capabilities to help with an intelligence use case. You know, when, when we think about technology uh, today, we think of long programs of record to develop things that by the time they get fielded are pretty much obsolete. You know, we need like the Ukrainians did with their apps, something that's quick, it's easy, it works, you get it in the field. And move forward because there's always more uses for it than it was designed for and that's what you got to constantly think about uh, particularly on the open source side you know if, if every one of you was to, to look at your phone inside your phone is something called a marketing ID number it's very hard to get to okay because that's how the advertisers target you but guess what that marketing ID also does patterns of life so the marketing guys say, I want to know everybody that was at the Ravens game this weekend and get a dump to, to send them advertisements and stuff. And go, I want to know where the guy that kept going from this corner to the Russian embassy somewhere else every single day is going. You could use that same technology to do the same thing. It's just, it wasn't designed for that. It was designed for marketing. But it had an intelligence capability that you could do that to do patterns of life analysis. You know, the game changer we're really starting to go through is about classification levels, because honestly, open source is oftentimes beating our classified data sources. So in about the fall of 18, I was in Afghanistan, I was meeting with General Miller, the commander of all our forces there, and I had a small team that, aside from an intelligence mission, I had a small team that did public affairs with him. And they would sit in the operations center with all the intel guys and the ops guys and the logistics guys, but they were only working with unclassified publicly available information, whereas the ops guys had all the sensor reporting and the unit reporting. And he walked out there, he said, you see your two guys there? I said, yep. He said, last week I walked in here five times with a question. Three out of five times, your guys were the only ones that knew the answer. The entire system in the intelligence community couldn't answer the question, but the open source guys were able to. So classification is evolving. It really is to say it's gonna be more about really technical specific secrets that we need to keep because the imagery capabilities that are commercially available today are what we had you know, in the US system a decade or so ago. So it's a matter of how do we protect our information but don't rely on classified information as a panacea because honestly, three out of five is probably the average that you can find a lot of this information in the open source. There'll be certain areas like when we look at denied access in China that you might not be able to but I can tell you that open source can get behind the great firewall very easily. I had a team that did it right in the subway in New York City on the public Wi-Fi. Because I didn't know if it was a trap, a honeypot trap for us, or if it was really a vulnerability that we were able to exploit with just regular laptops and the internet. And it turned out it was just a vulnerability we exploited and came back with all sorts of Chinese documents from the government, from the military, all kinds of things. Because nothing is impenetrable. Eventually somebody's going to find a way in. 
So and the other thing I like to say is analysis is a lot like the game of golf. Because if you know how to hit the ball, the odds are you can pick the right club to swing at any any hole you're facing, any shot you have to take. It's the same here. If you go back to understanding critical thinking and the context of analysis, you can tackle any intel problem. It may take you a little while to become an expertise on the, the certain scenario that you're working, but the critical thinking is what's really important there. Because honestly, there's only about one in 20 and the people that take up analysis as a career are what I call them naturally gifted. The ones that can just look at a data set and go, boom, that's the answer. Okay, and that's that the average is held out pretty much throughout my whole career. I've met a few of them. And it's not hard to see them once you get to talk to them a little bit. But the rest of this, we have to work at because it, it is a professional trade craft that requires some uh, learning, but most importantly, the learning never ends. It's constantly on the job training, and you constantly get better over time. And the more you do it, the more you remember other scenarios of how you solve tough analytical problems to get there. So that kind of wraps up the domain piece. What I did want to just briefly touch on here is the National Military Intelligence Foundation, which I am the president of currently uh, for the last two years. But we are a, a nonprofit, 48-year history, and really we do two things, well, three things. First is we recognize the currently serving intel uh, folks that are in the community across the agencies and the services. Basically, it's like the Oscars of the intel community every year, and that's coming up here on November 16th. It's a great event we do, but we also give out scholarships. And for the last two years, we've had two people from IWP receive a scholarship from the foundation, one of which is with us here today, Angelique. So um, we're looking forward to recognizing you when you come to the gala there. And then the other is we publish what's called the American Intelligence Journal, which is one of the few remaining Intel scholarly uh, publications out there. We publish it twice a year. It's a great way to get your papers published. Uh, we do. We have a theme every uh, issue, but we take topics across the board to, to fill in. We just did one on open source. We're doing one on multi-domain operations, and then the next one is on the space domain in particular. Uh, but we always will take opportunities to publish any relevant paper for Intel work, and there's a lot of chance to do book reviews. So if, the, if you've got a professor that needs a good book review done as a project, give you a few extra credit points, we do that too. So, uh, and like I said, our gala is on November 16th here in DC, so it'll be a fun time. If anybody's interested in attending, you can talk to me about that there, the way to get tickets. And with that, we will shift to Q&A. Awesome, let's give uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wiki a round of applause. Hopefully you got questions. Yes. Inter interrupt you. <laughs> and if anybody has questions, I have a mic, so I'll come around uh, so you guys can ask. And then folks online can still chat something in? Yes, sir. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I'll wait for the mic, yeah, for the folks online, yeah. Um, could you say a bit more about um, multi-spectrum analysis, what, what it already can do and what it may be able to do over time? And I presume there's scope for it to be misused by, I mean, the, the, I, when I Googled it, I found there are now low-cost multi-spectrum <laughs> sensors. So what could Bellectors be doing with it? So that actually is a good question. I mean, what, what do we do with it today? I will tell you that we have done everything from checkpoint security to make sure uh, like 100 meters out, you know, the truck stops to make sure there's no explosive residue on it. Mm -hmm. um, the FBI has used it in cases where they had to try to find deceased bodies by flying it in airborne. Um, we've done it basically from ground level to about 50,000 feet altitude with a variety of different sensors. So the question really boils down to what do you do with it depends on how much room for a sensor do you have. Um, we've taken what typically was about a 1,500 pound payload down to a 250 pound payload that can be mounted uh, on the wing of an aircraft versus having to have a manned aircraft to fly with all the computer processing. Uh, but it's it really is endless is the way I'm looking at it. From a business standpoint, I'm starting to look at commercial solutions. You can fly down a pipeline to see if there's a leak. Um, we're doing another, a couple other scenarios where um, you can fly over, say, a canopy jungle looking for a certain gas emission that might be tied to, say, a cocaine lab. Um, or you could do counter IED emissions. Um, commercially, I think it's more about checks and balances, just looking for things that seem off. You could fly it against nuclear power plants if you wanted to detect for activity. Anything that has a signature, you can program to be.
detectable. So really the, the use is limitless. The key is to get the higher resolution where it needs to be to be able to put it in space so that you can look at it globally and there is no more tonight access area for that. But uh, today we, we've done everything from handheld um, to help track a target that's been tagged with something to high altitude looking relatively deep standoff distances to be able to identify certain key signatures. So we've done it a little bit commercially and then we've done it for law enforcement. Um, but really it's a matter of as much as imagination. What could an adversary do with it? They could basically apply any of that against us, you know, um, particularly looking for a certain type of production facility or something like that they may want to target. Well, they could track innocent people that um, they want to keep tabs on. Well, in order, I will tell you that the technology to order to basically tag a person and then track a person is just starting. We're, we're involved in some of the development of that from a kinetic standpoint, but uh, eventually it's not, it's not physically impossible. But the, the challenge is the smaller of a platform to be nondescript like a camera or a cell phone to be able to detect it is not the same as the focal planes and telescopes that go into some of the other bigger sensors. So. Um, and it's different sizes, you know, the, the package that we provided the Air Force is only about 100 pounds, like a ball that basically can move around. Down to, we have a five pound payload that has much more limited uh, signature capability, but it can still detect as well, uh, like a small rotary unit. So, um, it's definitely going to be the future because it's not like you have this big ellipse of a signal target hit or something. It's going to give you a location with a scientific reading that says this material is there. So uh, it's got a lot more future potential. Thank you. Yep. Yes, I, I, I must confess, I teach history and I don't understand anything of this at all. Uh, I, I think I have a question um, and it is very, very general. Uh, this is highly technical discussion and I really understood very well. I was about to ask you, how the hell did they ever conclude the Civil War without ignoring that? Attrition. How, how much, by any quantitative analysis, would you say, as a layman here, are we now, in 2020, with your background and your study, than we were some time before? Are we 10 times higher? Are we 100 times? Twice? What is the quantitative jump in intelligence compared to any time in history? Or you could say last year. Mm -hmm. Last year we could be 100 times more. Uh, but let's say some recent time. Yeah. To, to me it seems like 500 times more. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, a historian. Yeah, I mean, basically we're, the intelligence community is following the same path computers are with Moore's Law. And it's just doubling and doubling and tripling. And, uh, you know, I, I go back to, like, you know, Desert Storm, piece of paper would come in and we'd have to all read it. That's why I'm reading glasses, because I was reading 2,000 pages of really crappy printed message reports every day and then looking at imagery. Today, um, you know, back then you would have a, an image on paper or on film, but you could really zoom in and digitally enhance it and do all those things. And every single decade has gotten better. I'll tell you that when we started Iraq, we didn't do patterns of life analysis. We didn't do density plots to say, there's a pattern of where the IEDs are being in place and the times of day they're being in place or set off. Um, we're doing data mining at a scale that's never been seen before. To, we used to talk about finding a needle in the haystack. Now it's find like the gold needle in the pile of a thousand needles, you know, things like that. Um, it, in human through Open source has been a whole nother area, even in denied countries. There's people that do a lot of things, uh, even in China, there's a lot of social media presence and things. So I would tell you, we're, we're almost following that, that Moore's Law curve. Of it's increasing faster than we can keep up. The question usually that slows us down a little bit is, is there a policy in place that prevents us from using the data that, that could slow us down more? Like in the European Union, there's a lot of rules about open source data and social media data and what it can be used for versus what's in the US. But our capabilities to see, detect, are astronomically going up and they'll continue to do that. And the question is, again, when you look at all those domains, back in the day, you know, space was either 
uh, satellite imagery that would take you a week if you were lucky to the time I got to Kosovo, I could get in 45 minutes to now you can almost get something real time and be able to physically enhance it and get just a little chip of what you needed over a small bandwidth through communications. So it's, it's making a difference every day. The problem is if we can't keep continuing to boil that down to give the policymaker the key points they need, they're not going to make informed decisions. I think I'll change majors. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I said, it's been a lifelong career for me. The, the changes from when I started and we were studying the Russian forces that were going to come through the fold of the gap with you know, East and West Germany back in the day to where we are today is like night and day, too. So you, have to, you have to follow not only the technology, but the cultural aspects of what's going on and what are the ultimate goals they want to achieve. The other big difference is most of this is non-state actors now versus state actors and governments and countries. So how do you fight non-state actors at a strategic level? It's a much different approach, too. Yes, sir. Steve, thank you so much for your presentation. I wanted to ask you, I've heard that we have great difficulty in finding Scud missile sites during the Gulf War uh, in Iraq. And it, I, it was my understanding that that was because of the effectiveness of Iraqi denial and deception operations. And so I would like to ask you, to what extent is that impression of mine accurate? And um, what can you comment about the advances in denial and deception that have taken place, uh, at least amongst those powers in the world, that take this discipline seriously? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in this because I, uh, uh, it's, it's been one of my strategic deception, as opposed to tactical deception, has been one of my fields of interest. And uh, recently there was a study by one of the CIA's uh, former chief experts on deception, and he concluded that the only that the study of deception is not a uh, a systematic professional uh, specialization and discipline, discipline in the intelligence community, and that the only times historically that it has been is when there has been a CIA director that is personally interested in it. And then there's ramping up of, of, of attention to the field, and then it just sort of goes away. So going back to the start of the beginning of the Gulf War. So yes, there was a challenge finding them before they fired. Part of it was trying to, they would camouflage in the desert fairly well until they fired and then tracking from there. But the main challenge we had is we didn't have enough sensor coverage to really track them. When I, when I showed that J-STARS example, there was one aircraft in existence and it had a certain range. So all the SCUDs were coming from basically Western Iraq for the most part. And we were focused on the fight that was in basically eastern and central Iraq. So there was a challenge with it. Um, there still is a challenge with deception. I'll tell you, in Kosovo, I can recount a number of times where the only reason we found a camouflage command post in the woods was because a vehicle stopped on the road. People got out and walked, and you, as you're watching the people, they suddenly disappeared <laughs> because they went into the tent that was camouflaged and did it camouflaged enough that the heat signature didn't sufficiently contrast that there was something there. Um, I think you're right that it's not a tried-and-true discipline. Um, we got a little bit better at looking at camouflage and concealment kind of stuff because of all the IED fights of figuring out, you know, what were signs of disturbed earth and where were signs of wires. And we've developed some sensors that could penetrate the dirt to see some of those things as a result of it. But it's still not a dedicated field of study in the intelligence community, and it's usually... I'll say it's more of a niche scenario that you're looking at against. But we all know how well Russia does that with a lot of their underground facilities. Um, and over time, you start to see patterns that help you find these things. But I would still say it's not a really well-studied craft. Uh, we still have some capability in the military that focuses on our de denial and deception, but it's more the tactical level than the strategic level. So, does that answer your question? Thank you. Okay.
How about you, the Russians? From a facility standpoint, I think the Russians and the Iranians to a degree, because it's underground kind of stuff, doing well, but tactically, uh, nobody's really doing it that well anymore. We used to practice a lot in the Cold War with all that, but nowadays, uh, you could put a camouflage net over a command post, but the heat signature is still going to be there, and other things are going to be there that's still detectable. So I heard a very worrying suggestion, worrying to me, that, that it might be possible to know where all of the Russian nuclear facilities are and take them out very quickly. That seemed to me very optimistic. Yeah. I, I'm not going to comment other than to say they know where ours are, we know where theirs are, generally speaking. You know, so but you have to take them out before they fire. So you not yeah. only have to know where they are, you have yeah, to... Yeah, and there, there's enough redundancy in all those that neither side could do it in a timely manner, so... Neither side could do it. That's my opinion, yeah. That's a personal opinion. But there's yeah. so many of them to do a simultaneous attack with no detection signature ahead of time. For us to do it to them or them to do it with us, that's why we have in the deterrence. Great. Thank so. you. We got anything from online? No? Okay. Okay. Still got a few minutes for more questions. Seeing none, uh, you guys can always ask uh, Mr. Ariki after the event as well. So I guess we'll cut it yep. there. And you can always it. find me on LinkedIn. So uh, and there's a Gmail address there too. So awesome. Can we give another hand to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ariki? All right. So we'll turn this on. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for coming. I want to grab a picture of the screen real quick. So thank you again uh, to everybody both online and in person for coming to our uh, lecture today. If you are at all interested in attending any of our other upcoming events, uh, making a gift to IWP or applying to one of our graduate degree programs, please visit us at iwp.edu uh, or find a staff member in the lobby after the lecture. Thank you again, everybody.